Welcome to The Mental Breakdown, where we tackle all issues related to mental health, mental illness, parenting, schooling, relationships, and everything in between. While Drs. Bernie and Richard will provide the most up-to-date ideas and perspectives, the information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for medical care. Our goal here at The Mental Breakdown is to provide you with information to help you make your life the best it can be. So without further ado, here's Dr. Bernie and Dr. Richard. Welcome to Episode 4 of The Mental Breakdown. I'm Dr. Bernie. I'm Dr. Richard. And today we are going to start what will likely be a series of podcasts focusing on something that's near and dear to all of our hearts, and that is our education system. Now, if you live in the in the Lakeland area in Central Florida, hopefully you've been following our columns on the education system that we've been writing for The Ledger. If not, you can find those articles at theledger.com. We've been writing over the last couple of months uh, a series of columns focusing on where our education system is and where we would like for it to adjust and, and change for in the future. So today we're going to start talking about some of that here in the podcast. We're hoping that you are able to take some of this information, uh, digest it a little bit, and uh, we would love to hear from you if you have any of your own thoughts or ideas or suggestions or even criticisms. I think that it's important for us to have these discussions so that we can elicit some change into the future. So when it comes to the education system, uh, just a a little bit of brief history. Both Dr. Richard and I have our training, uh, our initial training, was in education. Um, I'm a school psychologist by training. Uh, Dr. Richard uh, earned his first doctorate. Yes, he has two doctorates. He, He received his first doctorate in reading education back when books were first starting to be written, I think. Um, Then he received his second doctorate in uh, school psychology from uh, University of Georgia. So we both have a history of working in the education system, and that's actually where we first met back in the early 2000s, and, uh, well, the rest is history from there. (laughs) He has no comments. So today we're going to to start out with a history of education, and, and Dr. Richard is going to help us Uh, start with that path, talking about educational reform. Uh, That's something that seems to be new. It seems that a lot of people are acting as though education reform is something from the 21st century, uh, when in fact it dates back just about as long as our educational system here in the United States has been present. That's right. You make a good point, Dr. Bernie, about school reform and that it's not new. Uh, What we're experiencing now And I think we've seen it in the last three or four presidential elections that education has become an important topic in political debates, particularly presidential debates. Uh, This is new. When when I was a youngster, presidential candidates simply didn't talk about education. Now it's become a a hot topic. In the news these days, we're hearing things about high-stakes testing. You've heard of the Common Core. There's a great debate about the Common Core. There are talks about sanctions against schools, school choice, charter schools, magnet schools. Parents should have a choice of where they want to send their kids. These are all topics that surround the larger issue of what we're going to call school reform. And I'm going to use the term school reform rather than educational reform 
and this may this may shock some but education is only one aspect of schooling and we're going to talk about that in a minute but we're going to talk about school reform and school reform has been going on since the founding of our country the first school reformers were uh, thomas jefferson and george washington and they had very specific ideas about what schools would have to do in this new nation. This was a new experiment when we broke free of England. This was a totally new concept that citizens were going to govern themselves. And prior to this, kings and, and nobility governed everybody else. They made all the decisions. Now citizens were going to make those decisions and those citizens needed to be educated. Thomas Jefferson believed strongly in schools educating citizens so that they could govern themselves. So you're saying that when our founding fathers came uh, to the United States and were, were founding what we now call the United States, they were creating something that they had never themselves experienced before. They had never experienced an educational system that was driven by the people. Mm -hmm. It was always something that was governed and directed by the monarchy. Right. Yeah, one of the things we forget is that no country in the world had ever tried this kind of democratic experiment before where people govern themselves. It's a completely new concept. And the role of the citizen, however you define citizen, the role of the citizen was going to change dramatically because now the citizen had to be educated in order to participate in their own governance. And so it became the job of schools to educate citizens. And by the 1820s, after the country had been firmly established, we have something called the Common School Movement. And the idea with the Common School Movement, which started in Massachusetts, was that children would be brought into schools and be given a common education so that there would be equality of opportunity. Not equality, but equality of opportunity. And all children would get the same education so that they would all be educated and they could all participate in the democracy. From 1820s to the 1850s, therefore, the main goal of schooling was to train citizens, give us common values. We live in this new country, common values, train the citizens. From 1880 to 1920, schools changed again because from 1880 to 1920, we have this huge influx of immigrants, mainly from Europe, and they have to be brought into the country and Americanized. So we have people with different languages, different customs, different foods, different clothing, and we bring them in. They all flood into the United States. And so the job of schools now becomes one of Americanizing these children. For example, my grandparents came from Europe and spoke Italian. My parents were not supposed to learn Italian. My grandparents wanted them to become Americans. And by the third generation, which would be my generation, we were not encouraged to use Italian at all. So instead of being bilingual, I'm monolingual because the goal was for us to become Americans. From the 1920s to the 1940s, we have the Great Depression. So schools change again. The goal of schooling is to get young people out of the workforce. We don't want teenagers taking jobs that um, husbands should have. And so the goal of schooling is let's get kids out of the workforce, what do you do with them? You put them into schools. That's the birth of the American high school. And with that comes the birth of the teenager. Now that you have these large numbers of kids all in one place, advertisers saw this as a market and it was advertisers who invented the word teenager. I think that that's a great point because what we do know from our anthropological neighbors 
who, who are doing research from all over the world in different societies and different cultures, what we think of as teenagers is a very Western, right. very American perspective. It is. Mm-hmm. In other cultures, uh, teenagers do. They go right to work. They start their families in their mid-teenage years. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we think of as adolescents or teenagers it is a very American perspective. That's right. It's a uniquely American, almost uniquely American perspective. In fact, we have subcultures in this country, such as the Amish in Pennsylvania, where by age 15 or 16, you're a working adult. Your education is over by eighth grade, and now you become a working adult. You're a member of the adult community by 16 or 17. And so that began in the early to mid-1900s. Right. That's when that was birthed based mm-hmm. upon our social climate at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so by the 1940s, we have these large collections of kids that we call high schools now. And we're keeping those kids in school until they're 17 or 18 years of age. Then from the 1950s, so we go through World War II, from the 1950s to the 1980s, the biggest change that occurred occurred when the Russians launched Sputnik. And that scared this country and then uh, the goal of schooling was to catch up with the Russians, particularly in math and science. So from the 1950s to the 1980s, we see massive amounts of money going into education, but mainly math and science education from that, the space program and the race to the moon. But this was in competition with the Russians. So schools became places where we could train people to compete with the Russians. One quick thing from from that time period was something massive happened in the 1970s. Right? It was in the 1970s that the Public Law 94-142 uh, was published through, through the government, basically requiring the schools to educate every child. And so we have this evolution of education, sort of a, a, a sub-evolution of education that began where now every student, despite disability, despite impairment, despite any limitation was now required by the government to be educated in a free free and appropriate education and in least restrictive environments. So that was also the end of some of the programs that we had previously where troubled students or challenging students would leave school and the schools were not, no longer responsible for them. Now the schools became responsible for those students as well. And that is sort of a underlying adjustment that I think we're still seeing the effects of, uh, that it's still having an impact on our education system. And and we'll kind of pick up on that a little bit more later as we're talking about some of the current trends. But that was something massive that happened right in the middle of that science and engineering and and science and math uh, reform. Right. You make an excellent point. We talk about schools as being the agents of change. In this country... We ask our schools to perform a social function. For example, when we wanted to Americanize recent immigrants, we asked our schools to do that. When we wanted to train citizens, we asked our schools to do that. When we wanted to get youth off the streets, we asked our schools to provide places for them. And beginning in the 1950s, we have the beginnings of the civil rights movement. And in 1954, we have the famous Brown versus Board of Education that says separate is not equal. And now you are bringing 
children into the mainstream of American education who had been left out before. Black children were by and large educated in segregated schools and they were not part of the educational mainstream. They had a separate school, separate school systems, and um, the Supreme Court in 1954 said separate is not equal. Well, that happened in the 50s. In the 60s, you have parents of handicapped children say, saying, well, our children, our children with handicapping conditions are not getting uh, free and appropriate public education. Most of you have seen the movie Forrest Gump. Uh, Forrest was denied access to uh, his regular public school. His mother, of course, arranged access, but he didn't have access to a regular public school because he had braces on his legs. In the 1950s, we have black children admitted to public schools. In the 1970s, we have children with handicapping conditions uh, admitted to public schools. And then in 1972, we have women who gain equal access to educational and athletic opportunities in schools. So from the 1950s to the 1980s, the American school system was asked to become more inclusive and to battle the issue of racial segregation. For example, when we wanted to integrate our country back in the 1960s and 1970s, when we said we want to integrate, who was asked to integrate the country? The public schools through busing. That's how integration was changed. It wasn't changed by neighborhood. It wasn't changed in any other way. We asked our public schools to integrate the country. And we did that with busing and other integration policies. So by the 1980s, we have a much more inclusive group of students, uh, racial, handicapping conditions, more women. And so the composition of the American classroom changes dramatically by 1980 from what it was in 1950. What schools are asked to do beginning in the 1980s takes a dramatic shift. And the dramatic shift was started by two forces, two big changes happened in our national psyche in the 1980s. One was that during the Reagan administration, we were told that government is not the solution as it had been in the 1960s and the 1970s. During the Johnson, Kennedy, Johnson, uh, and even Nixon administrations, uh, the federal government got involved in solving problems, poverty, uh, inequality, racial injustice. By the 1980s, there is a major shift in thinking and during the Reagan administration when, where Ronald Reagan said government is not the solution, government is the problem. And the, the change in philosophy was that private enterprise does everything better than the government does it. And private enterprise does everything better, including education. Because prior to 1980, education was a public policy. From 1980 on, we hear the drumbeat for privatization of education. The second, so, so that's one thing, is that government doesn't do things very well, including educate our children. The second major force was a book written by Reagan's Secretary of Education called A Nation at Risk. And this book scared the country into action because what the author of this book was saying, Terrence Bell was saying was, we are falling behind all other industrialized nations. And if we don't do something about our educational system, all of these countries are going to pass us by and we're going to be left behind. So that book, A Nation at Risk, sort of encapsulated all the fears that we were feeling about our nation falling behind. And some of those anxieties have continued, right? If we look at some of the current comparisons uh, across different countries, we 
are not at the top of the list. Uh, we are, well, in, in many we're, ways... We're told we're not at the top of the list, yes. Right, mm -hmm. right. So this, this globalization uh, that we're going through over the past couple of decades, we are now, and perhaps starting in the Reagan administration, we're now comparing our local children, our local schools, uh, to schools in Japan and, and right. schools in Finland and different countries around the world, something that we've never done before. Mm -hmm. We've never made those kind of comparisons before, and so it does create a bit of anxiety because we as Americans tend to be very competitive people. We tend to be very patriotic, and so we want to be uh, the top of the list. And so when we, when we see some of these things, it, it drives that competitive nature that we have, and we want Correct. to work harder and do more. Yeah, and you, you make a good point. When we compare our students, students in the United States, to students from other countries, one of the things we have to remember that beginning with these more inclusive policies, racial, women, handicapping conditions, we broadened our education to include larger numbers of students, and many of those students, many of those students were, were underachieving to begin with. We have this notion, historically in this country, that we want to educate all of our citizens, that all of our citizens deserve an education. Not all countries share that philosophy. In many countries, only students who have demonstrated capacity are going to get a high school education. In our country, everybody is entitled to a high school education. So when we compare the U.S. students to students from other countries, we are comparing all U.S. students. They are not just a select group. If we took just the students in our country who were high achievers, those kids who were going to private schools or preparatory college prep high schools, we would compare favorably with all other countries. We don't compare favorably with all other countries because we're comparing all of our students, not just a select group. So that's a, that's, that's a great point because what you're saying is, is that we're comparing right. all of our students mm -hmm. to just the upper... Group their of, highest achievers. Their highest achievers from other, right. other countries. That's right. And, and, you know, while other countries don't have the same type of perspective as we do where every child will be educated, in some countries, if I'm not mistaken, parents would have to pay That's for right. their kids to attend school. And That's so, right. again, you're, we're getting into a situation where we're comparing some of our children who are in poverty, mm -hmm. which, which tends to be, you know, washing out uh, gender and racial right. and right. all these other social demographics, poverty mm -hmm. is one of the most impactful attributes. And we're comparing our children in, in poverty right. to, to children in other countries who tend to be the more wealthy children of privilege. Uh, right. and children of privilege. That's so right. uh, that's a great point. We, and I think that's important that everyone keep that in mind, that we're, we're not comparing Apples to apples. That's right. That's um, right. It's an unfair. It's an unfair comparison because you're comparing two very different groups of kids. You know, we have compulsory education in this country. You have to stay in school until you're 16. So when we provide educational statistics, we're providing educational statistics on a whole range of students, some who are clearly underachieving. And if we're comparing them to some of the European countries, only certain students go beyond the elementary school level. You have to pass a test. To get, administered to, to get admitted to middle school and high school. So you're already starting with a select group in some of those European countries. So yes, we're going to fall short because we're comparing all of our students to a select group of theirs. You know, we're, we're kind of jumping off on a little bit of a tangent, but just one final thing. You, you mentioned the words uh, compulsory education. 
what that means is is that that children up to the age of 16 must go to school. They must be enrolled in some form of education okay. uh, without with, with some type of punishment. Uh, about two months ago, my son changed schools, and um, he went from one public school to a charter school. In, in making that change, the, the new school failed to enroll him in a timely manner. And my, my son's 14. We received a, a letter in the mail from the Department of Transportation that says that uh, Connor will be unable to get his driver's license because he's not enrolled in school really? um, until we get him re-enrolled and, and prove that he has been enrolled in school. So, in the so United he States, couldn't get a driver's license at age 16 because he was not enrolled in school. Right. So th- there, are, there are consequences to students who do not attend school up to at least the age of, of 16. And I think it's different in different states where students can opt to drop out of school, uh, take the GED, and do some of those other things at certain ages in the mid to later teenage years. But I think that the idea of compulsory education is is really important because, again, we're creating this situation where there are no opportunities for students to get out of this. They they have to attend school. They have to be present. And and there's consequences to the student and potentially to the parents uh, if the students do not attend regularly. Well, and the other other point is, besides everybody must be there at least to the age of 16, is that once we open schools up to many more students of varying abilities, we created the problem of what do we do about underachieving students? And and students underachieve for many, many reasons. But the challenge is, what do we do about the underachievers? Now, when most of you adults who are over the age of 40 or 45, when you were in school, You were given a a test at the end of the year, Iowa Test of Basic Skills, the Stanford Achievement Test. But those were were tests that compared you to other children your age in the country. Across the country. Across the country. So every, you know, millions of children took the Iowa Test of Basic Skills and students from Lakeland, Florida were compared to students from Ames, Iowa. Okay, how did you do compared to those students? When we began to admit larger numbers of students and when we became concerned about our students falling behind with the nation at risk we already knew by giving tests like the Iowa test of basic skills or the Stanford achievement test we already knew that 25 to 40 percent of students were underachieving and beginning in the 1970s parents began to sue states because children were graduating from high school and they were unable to read. And states were paying large punitive damages because students were told, you have a high school diploma, but the student was reading at a second or third grade reading level and was unemployable. So that became the problem that everybody focused on back in the 70s and 80s, is we we can't afford these lawsuits, so what do we do about it? Well, the solution that we came up with was, there were two solutions, number one, we have to make sure that children are learning to read as they progress through the grades. It's too late to find out in 10th grade that you're reading at a third grade reading level. So the first solution was, let's test kids earlier. The second solution was, instead of comparing kids to each other, let's decide what kids need to learn and make sure that they're learning those things at each grade level. In other words, what what things should a first grader know? What things should a third grader know? What things should a fifth grader know? 
And those things are called standards. And so what we get in the 1980s is educational reform becomes standards-based education. And that's what the current educational reform is about. When you hear Common Core, when you hear high stakes testing, when you hear student grade recovery, when you hear schools of choice, what we're talking about is somebody is not meeting the standard that has been set. We need to pause here to discuss this issue of standards because standards is one of two paths that current educational, current school reform is taking. If we go back to the 1980s, we now have this very inclusive compulsory education. We now have large numbers of students who are falling short of regular graduation requirements. And then the Reagan administration produces this book, A Nation at Risk, and it scares everybody into action. And the action was in two paths, two avenues. The first avenue was we have to have standards. The second avenue was government's not very good at these kind of things. So let's apply business principles, the principles that work in a capitalist economy, the private enterprise, things like competition and standards and what are the expectations. And let's use, let's apply those business principles to education because that will make education better. Competition among schools will make education better. So beginning in the 1980s, Educational reform now becomes one of utilizing business principles to improve schools and standards. So now we have standards-based education. So beginning with the first Bush administration, we have a move towards standards-based education that continued through the Clinton administration. One of the interesting changes that happened during the Clinton administration was the National Reading Panel, which was founded in 1996, made the decision that uh, reading was important. The National Reading Panel discovered that if a student wasn't reading at grade level by third grade, that student would never catch up. That's the reason why high-stakes testing is important at third grade, because the idea was we're going to capture those kids at third grade, and if they're not reading at grade level by third grade, we'll know it then, and we can give them the interventions they need to catch up. So we don't wait until they're in high school. We catch them at third grade. So these are all part of that standards-based movement that began in the 1980s. So if we take that and we sort of use that lens to look at everything that's happened since the 1980s, and probably more profoundly in the past two decades, what we see is that expectations that we have for students continue to be shifted down. So what, mm-hmm. if, we, if we look at what's, what's happening, we now have schools where kindergartners are required to read and they're doing accelerated reading tests and things like that where back in the 1970s and 1960s you know in kindergarten we were hopefully learning our alphabet and being able to count to 100 you were were learning how to go to school right that that's what kindergarten was for you use that kindergarten year to get you ready to go to school right so now what we've done is we've since we have this expectations that students should be able to read by third grade or else they're going to be in trouble, what we're doing is we're pushing the expectations lower and lower so students are experienced and exposed to more and more developmentally challenging material much earlier than they used to be to the point where, of course, now we have fourth graders doing algebra, we have kindergartners having to read, kindergartners having to write paragraphs. We hear these stories, and it's always fascinating to me because 
you know, not only does this have an impact on education, but this has an impact on society at large because what have we also seen over the past three or four decades? Uh, a huge uh, increase in diagnoses of things like ADHD, huge increase of diagnoses such as uh, learning disabilities and behavioral problems and things like that. And I, I think it would be naive to say that there's no relationship between the increased expectations at developmentally younger ages and the children's not cognizant response to that, but certainly a developmental response to that. And, and we'll talk much more about that in future podcasts. Dr. Richard and I have a, a lot of opinions about ADHD and learning disabilities and, and what's happening with that. But as it relates to this idea of school reform and what's been happening in our education system over the past few decades, uh, certainly this correlation can't be ignored. And it leads to other decisions, uh, other questions. Uh, so when a, when a student is in a school that is struggling because other students aren't doing well or because the student him or herself is not doing well, our response to that, instead of looking at what we're expecting of them and what we're doing with our curriculum or what we're doing with our standards, then we begin to offer school, uh, students choice. Okay, so uh, we have this creation of, of schools of choice. We have charter schools. We have magnet schools. We have all of these other developed schools, these specialized schools, where parents can now send their children to get them out of problematic areas or what they deem to be problematic areas and into areas where they feel like their students are going to be able to perform better. Right. Right, and that, and that's that's the whole issue with standards. Because when you talk about standards, and I don't think anybody's opposed to standards, you know, sure. what what should a third grader be doing? Absolutely. The issue becomes, what is the standard, and who gets to decide what a student should do at a particular grade level? There's no there's no international standard for third grade reading. I mean, you know, in, in Iceland, you can't go to school until you know how to read. So who decides what a kindergarten student should do? And should the standard be set for the highest achieving students or should the standard be set for the lowest achieving student? Because if you take a group of five-year-olds, some five-year-olds can read. Some children are not going to read until they're seven. So how do you determine what the standard is? You know, we expect our kindergarten students to write short paragraphs. They have to write several sentences. Well, developmentally, not all kindergarten students, especially boys, are going to be able to do that. So while we're not opposed to standards, I think we have to be very careful about what the standard is at each grade level. And when we talk about Common Core, that's what's going to be the Common Core is standards-based education. We have nothing against Common Core, but who gets to decide the standard? It's like values education or character education. Well, whose values are you teaching? Are you, are you teaching my values from, from Europe? Are you teaching Asian values? Or are you teaching Muslim values or Christian values? We can't just talk about values. We have to talk about whose values are there. Same with standards. We can't talk about standards. Which kid are we talking about? Are we talking about the advanced five-year-old or the delayed five-year-old? Because they're all in the same class. Uh, so we have decisions to make. So part of this two-pronged educational reform is standards. The other part is business principles. Yeah, and I think that just one last point with standards and standardization of education. Dr. Richard and I, because of our work, we get to see this almost firsthand. We get referrals for students who are at risk for retention. We'll get referrals for students who are, are struggling and, and there's concerns that they're not going to pass the standardized test for the year. And so teachers and parents will refer the kids to us for uh, neuropsychological assessments 
so that we can look to see if, and identify any particular learning disabilities or processing problems. And what happens is when we look at this situation, the student is clearly failing to meet expectations in the curriculum. Right. But the testing that we administer are our tests, educational tests, academic tests that are uh, standardized by national norms. So if we test a, thir a third grader, we are comparing that third grader's performance to third graders from all over the country, not in his curriculum, but based upon students' performance all over the country. And what we find often, especially over the past couple of years, more and more students who are being referred because they're failing in school, failing in their curriculum, but they are right on target when you compare them to other third graders around the country. And so from a developmental perspective, which the national sample would give us more of what would be developmentally consistent with other third graders from around the country, the student is doing just fine. But when you compare them to their performance in their particular curriculum, they're struggling. And so this idea of whose standards, who sets the expectations, who determines at what level a student should be able to perform at what developmental stage, it is a massive question. It's something that we really have to attend to. And this concept of common core, and, and all states are going to have some form of common core. In Florida, we call it the Florida Standards, but that's common core. Common core is a curriculum that prepares students for college. That's the stated goal, is we want to prepare students for college. Number one, not all students are going to choose to go to college, so they don't need that kind of a curriculum. And number two, not all students are able to go to college and they're going to benefit from a very different kind of curriculum. So if, if we ask every student to do Common Core, we are asking every student to get ready for college. We shouldn't be preparing all students to go to college. Some will choose not to, and some will not be able to, and we need to make plans for that. When I think statistically, the majority of students don't go to college. That's correct. That's o correct. Only about 40% or so go to college. 40% start college. Right, start college, right, not, not right. complete college. Not, that's right. That's start right. college. 40% start. And so what we have, this most recent educational reform, is a combination of we're going to use business principles based mainly on competition, and we're going to test to make sure that you're succeeding. So we have that, that whole concept of who is being successful at this, and if you're not successful, we're going to shut you down. If you are not successful, two things are going to happen to your school. Number one, we're going to allow those students to go someplace else. And number two, if you continue to be a failing school, we're going to close you down. So the schools our children attend today, the schools that we're struggling to reform, are the product of private enterprise and standards, both of which seemed like good ideas at the time. Nobody would argue with the idea that competition makes businesses better. Problem is, we didn't know whether it would work with education or not. It seemed like it would. If, if we evaluate our schools and see which ones are high-performing and which ones are low-performing, uh, that seemed like a good idea, and we'll shut down the ones that aren't performing well, and we'll let kids go from underperforming schools to higher-performing schools. That all sounded good back in the 1990s. It also sounded good that we would be stating very explicitly what standards should be achieved at each grade level. And it would be very easy to determine which students met the standards and which student did not meet the standards. 
So the notion of we're going to run schools like businesses married to we're going to test for standards seemed like a really good idea back in the 1990s. And as we got into the 2000s with the second Bush administration, we, de we developed a national policy that came to be known as No Child Left Behind. Great value, again, um, who could argue with uh, No Child Left Behind? But the idea behind No Child Left Behind was, number one, we're going to test everybody. We're going to test kids, and we're going to make sure that those kids are achieving uh, or, or mastering the standards at each grade level. And if they're not, if they're not, we're going to punish those schools who are not doing that. We're going to reward the schools that do do that, and we're going to punish the schools that don't do that. And we're going to use money to drive all this. So if your students are meeting the standards at, at each grade level, we're going to give you more money. And if not, we're not going to give you more money. So in that sense, the, the reward part of No Child Left Behind, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. The schools who needed more resources, in fact, got less, and the schools who were already succeeding got more. That's called the Matthew effect, uh, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And I think that something else to throw in here is, is the idea that while it was a, a valiant idea, there are flaws, not only in the idea of Nickleby, but in the idea... Uh, that started back in the 80s where every child will be reading by at, on grade level by third grade. Statistically, we know that's not possible. Mm -hmm. Statistically, right. we know that at least 16, if not 16 to 20 percent right. of kids are going to be below average, mm -hmm. um, meaning that they're not going to be able to read at a third grade level when they're in third grade. Now, if we kept them in third grade, and this was sort of the joke when all this came, came about, if we kept them in third grade until they were driving, until they were 15 or 16 years old, maybe. But the, the issue, and again, we, we, we kind of we joked about it a lot, that we were going to have to start putting in parking lots in, in elementary in, in and middle schools, schools right, right. Uh, for student drivers because, you know, we've certainly, uh, Dr. Richard and I have certainly had our, our fair share of patients that we've worked with right. who are, you know, uh, nine years old, um, 10 years old, and then 11 years old and still in third grade. Well, and, you know, it sounds funny. It, it sounds funny today. What's this, 2015? It sounds funny. But back in 2001 and 2002, when this, when No Child Left Behind was first enacted, that was the intent, is that we were, we were going to keep kids in third grade until they were reading at grade level. Well, all of a sudden, we have, you know, too many kids in third grade. And what do you do when a kid is 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old and still in the third grade? You create all other kinds of problems. But, but that really was the intent then, is that we're going to keep these kids there until they were reading at grade level. It sounds strange now, but that's exactly what we were thinking about back then. We were so worried for our patients and for students. And I remember working with parents, trying to help them navigate the system. And not just working with parents, but working with teachers who were... You know, you would have a student who performed well all year long. You know, we've had patients who, you know, if not on the A, B honor roll, A's, B's, and C's, uh, but then not do well on the standardized test and end up repeating third grade. And they're forced to repeat the third grade. Right. And so talking about, you know, the, the increase in just mental health issues, anxiety, right. depression, uh, frustration, anger, that comes as a result of some of these educational and right. school reforms is paramount. Right. Because once you establish the standard that everybody has to achieve, 
you're going to have some kids who have already achieved it and you're going to have other students who can't achieve it. And so you're going to create problems when you have a single standard for every grade level. And so into the 2000s, bringing us up to the current day, two forces are driving schools today, not driving education. Because what you have to remember is that this is school reform and schools, their primary job might be to educate, but they do a lot of, lot more than just educate. There's education, they socialize children. This is where children learn how the group is more important than the individual. This is where they learn how to do things according to a bell. At home, they're allowed to do things when they want. They go to school, they have to do things according to the teacher's rules. So many more things than education occur in classrooms. So this is about school reform. School reform is about private enterprise and standards. Now, with No Child Left Behind, schools take a sharp turn in that we are now going to measure. We're going to measure schools like we measure businesses. We're going to measure success and failure just as we do in business. And we're going to do that by testing the children. We're going to test the students. And students who don't master the standards are going to be held back. Teachers and those same test scores are going to be used to judge which teachers are being successful, and the same test scores are going to be used to judge which schools are not successful. Whether or not teachers have control over this isn't the issue. This single test is going to be used to measure students, teachers, and schools. And though this started with No Child Left Behind, it continues into the 2000s and into the Obama administration. The Obama administration has something called Race to the Top. And Race to the Top is grant-funded programs. Uh, school districts have to write grants. And in that grant, you have to show how, how the test scores are used to evaluate teachers. If you don't have some place in there where you're evaluating teachers based on student test performance, you're not going to get money for any of your programs. Now, what's fascinating about this from, a, from just a purely scientific perspective is that in research and in test development, we have this thing called validity. And validity means that a, a test measures what it purports to measure. But probably a, a better, more up-to-date definition is that the results of a test can be used in a way that the test is designed for. So if we have a, an educational test that we're creating, uh, we'll use the Florida Standards. We'll use Common Core as an example. If we create a test, a measurement tool, to look at student performance, that test is probably, hopefully, if it's a good, well-developed, well-built test, it's going to do just that. It's going to look at a student performance, student achievement. But by definition, that test does not measure or assess teacher effectiveness. Those are two different phenomena. Those are two different set of skills, set of expectations that we have. And, and to say, well, if a student does well academically, that must mean that the teacher's doing well. That doesn't make intuitive sense. Just as it shouldn't make intuitive sense that if a student is not doing well, that the teacher must not be doing his or her job well. And then we can expand it even further to the school, that just because a student doesn't do well on this particular academic test does not reflect how, how good or how poorly a school is performing. So we're using these tests 
for invalid reason. And really from a, from a psychological, from a test development perspective, we would never get this approved from the Institutional Review Board or, or by our research boards that approve testing or approve research. We would, this would never be approved. We would never be able to do this because the assumptions are not valid. You just can't do that. But yet, we're doing it every day. Um, right. Schools are held to expectations. Uh, they're being evaluated. Schools are being closed. Teachers are being fired. As a result of this, inappropriate implementation or inappropriate interpretation of tests. So we have to do better. We, we, we have to figure out what we're doing, how we want to do it. Again, we don't have any qualms with the idea of making sure that teachers are doing a good job. That's, that's perfectly fine and, and appropriate. But we have to do it in the right way. We can't, you know, students can come to school um, and, and there's, no, there's no way to predict the state of mind the students coming into the school day with. Mm-hmm. Um, so teachers are being evaluated by student performance on one particular test on one particular day, and, and the teacher has no control over that. Uh, this, this, for all we know, the child could have been abused the morning before they come to school, or they, the student could be homeless and have slept in the car the night before. Uh, the teacher doesn't have any control of these things. And again, it would be naive to believe that those type of factors don't have a role in the student performance on this test. Right, right. Yeah, and again, we have nothing against standards. We have nothing against the, these many of these school reforms. But when it, when it all gets distilled to how students perform on this single test, that becomes a problem. And so what we're doing is we're, we're emphasizing this single measure. One of the ways that private enterprise may not apply to teaching is that when you talk about private enterprise, you're talking about the manufacturing of products or the provision of services. And let's say we're building a car. Well, it only takes a couple days to build a car. So you know which workers worked on that car because you can tell when that car assembly started and when it was finished. But we're only talking about a few days. Education takes years. And so how is it possible to determine that, you know, you t- you test a child in fourth grade. Well, if he doesn't do well, is it the fourth grade teacher's fault or the third grade teacher's fault or the second grade teacher's fault or success? Because, in fact, they all contributed to that child's education. And education is a years-long process. And you can't judge the effectiveness of a single teacher when education is a years-long process. Absolutely. And that brings us to the point, using that same car manufacturing as an example, the people building the cars have complete control over the materials that are being used, when the materials are going to be applied, uh, and maybe the most important right. thing that we can't do in education, if a piece of material doesn't meet expectations, they can get rid of it. Right. Um, and we can't do that with students. And, and the car's not fighting back to be built. Right. You know, it, <laughs> it's not struggling not to be built. Right. So we, we treat all students as though they're the same. And, and, you know, one of the big questions that Dr. Richard and I keep asking um, and, and we've put into our, our newspaper column and we ask anybody that we think may be able to have an answer to is if we're going to treat all students as though they're the same, how do we explain or what do we do with those students who we know are different, those students who are not going to college? What are we doing to prepare them? You can have a student, I remember a patient that I worked with, who he knew from the time he was about 
15 years old, he knew that he wanted to be a welder. He didn't he had no interest in going to college. He had no interest in doing any of that. He wanted to have a high school diploma because, uh, you know, you have to have a high school diploma just about to get a job. Um, and he wanted to be a welder. Well, he still had to learn geometry. He still had to take, uh, he still had to take biology. He still had to take courses that have absolutely nothing to do with what he wanted to do with his life. And he was still held to the expectations of the same students that may go to Harvard or may go to any of the elite higher educational uh, institutions. So what do we do with these students who are not the traditional student with the expectation of going to college? That's right. Those Those who either choose not to or those who can't. What do we do with them? Because if they don't meet the standards, are we providing them with anything? So we have this reform that's going to combine private enterprise with with, uh, standards. And we we base many of our decisions on student performance on the single test. With No Child Left Behind and with Race to the Top, we have a reward and punish system where successful schools are rewarded with more money. Uh, Underperforming schools are punished with less money. They're punished with sanctions. They're punished with uh, lower teacher evaluations. Teachers don't get raises. And in fact, teachers could lose their jobs. And teachers don't have control over how students do on this test. As most of you already know, if a student chooses not to read the test and just circle the answers, a teacher is not allowed to interfere with that. That student has to be allowed to do that. And so the teacher has no control over how much effort the student is going to put into the test. Which is another example uh, of that which was fascinating just from a purely practical perspective is I remember the story that I think Richard, Dr. Richard, you told me about a, a student who was so anxious and worked up about the test that he threw up. He, he actually vomited on the test material itself and the teacher was required to scrape off the vomit so that the test material could still be submitted because A, the student had already started the test so he couldn't stop it and come back to it and B, There's only one set of materials for each student. So the soiled uh, paperwork had to be submitted uh, in that way. So what happens to teachers or or to anybody when we're in a situation where we're being evaluated over a set of circumstances for which we have no control? Well, psychologically, what we do with that is we attempt to find ways to take control. And and that culminated in in a, a big news report that came out around April 1st, and it wasn't an April Fool's Day joke, but uh, especially for the people involved, about 11 or 12 educators from Atlanta, Georgia, were found guilty of racketeering and other various charges, including theft and things like that, because they were manipulating student test performance. One particular person, as an example in, in some of the news reports that I read, suggested that she sat with gloves on and was editing the student responses on the test so that they would perform better, so that they would get higher scores, so that their school would then get extra funding, so that individual teachers would get additional funds and various rewards. And this all came about because, wow, all of a sudden, the school district started doing really well. What, what I think, though, is key to this story is that when you talk to those teachers and those educators, it all began with a climate of fear and intimidation brought down from the superintendent's office that they will perform 
at a particular level and that they will earn particular scores when the te their teachers and the schools are assessed based upon, again, these student performances. So here we have a, a major legal case involving this use of standards and perhaps the misuse of standardized testing uh, for use to evaluate teacher performance, to evaluate school performance. Um, and now these teachers, these educators, absolutely did, they did something wrong. They should, should not have done that. But when the climate is such, it leads people to doing things that they may otherwise have never done. A, a charge of racketeering uh, is a pretty substantial charge. And then, of course, the, the theft charges come with the fact that if they received incentive pay, that's considered theft from the government and from the, from the state. So the, these educators really put themselves in a, in, in a bad situation with some decisions that they were making, really just with the goal, I think, of taking some control back of a situation that they had no control over. Right. When you, when you create this kind of stress, when you create this kind of pressure... If you're just building a car, you have built-in controls. Edward Deming taught us this when he went to Japan after World War II and worked with Honda and Mitsubishi and, and what later became uh, Datsun. What are they called now? Whatever. I don't know. Um, used to be called Datsun. Datsun? And what, yeah. <laughs> it's old stuff, like my first dissertation. Um, and so, so when you create this kind of stress and you don't have control in a school the way you have control in a manufacturing plant. You can control each aspect, and that's what Deming taught us. He said you, you evaluate as you go along and you build this thing and you have quality controls built into it. It doesn't work that way in education. But when you have the same evaluation standards that we're going to test you, and if you don't measure up, we're going to blame somebody for not doing that. Well, I'm not a car builder putting a wheel on a car. That's a, that's a, that's a tangible, concrete action. When you're working with education, it, it doesn't work that way. So the, the principles of private enterprise may not work so well in education as they do in uh, manufacturing. But one of the offshoots of this, standards and private enterprise, is choice, educational choice. And um, so again, we're taking students out of underperforming schools and putting them in higher performing schools. The problem is there aren't enough places in those high performing schools for all the students who want to be there. So we create another problem with schools of choice. Which I think is a, a great place for us to start wrapping up for this week. Next week we'll tackle that. How does that sound? Sounds um, good. we got to talk about schools of choice. Next week we'll talk more about that and, and really get at some of these questions of, uh, all right, so what are we going to do with these kids who aren't going to college? What are the consequences of of schools of choice? Are they working out the way that we intended them to work out? That's um, right. I think we have to talk about the, the law of unintended consequences because when we talk about school reform and we try to solve problems, and I think everybody's trying to solve the problems, but we're always going to have to be dealing with unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So well, let's talk about that next time. I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. And if you have any questions or comments, please uh, reach out to us at our uh, Facebook page at Psychological Associates of Central Florida or at the Mental Breakdown Facebook pages and our blog, thementalbreakdown.com. We welcome your comments and, and questions, and we will certainly include them at future podcasts. So uh, until next time, I'm Dr. Bernie. And I'm Dr. Richard. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Mental Breakdown. If you want more information, you can check out our website at www 
www.pacflorida.com. The Mental Breakdown is sponsored in part by theledger.com, where you can read our weekly column in the live section. Our podcasts are available for download on iTunes, and you can follow us on our YouTube channel and Facebook. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us messages either through our website or on Facebook. You can send us questions or topics you'd like for us to address on future podcasts. Doctors Bernie and Richard are available for workshops, so you can contact us for more information. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stay mentally healthy.